Hi guys, this is Carrie from the Deprogram podcast on Unsafe Space. This episode is pretty cool. Uh, Carter and I got to pre-record a conversation or an interview with one of my friends, April Rose. Um, April describes herself as a classical liberal who has been negatively in- impacted by SJW culture, as have a lot of us. Um, she is brilliant. You can follow her on Facebook at April Rose Newman. That's April Rose Newman, N-E-W-M-A-N. Um, and yeah, she has a lot of interesting insights about SJW ideology and mental health issues, which I thought were fascinating. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as we did. April, welcome to Deprogrammed. Thanks for coming on the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So, um, you, you have a history with social justice, people of the social justice persuasion, we'll say, um, and you've been you've you've really been talking a lot about how you think there is psychological or mental issues that that should be addressed. I, I don't want to say that you're claiming that social justice warriors are all crazy. Um, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you do think there's some mental issues that have been manifesting themselves in, let's say, some of the crazier things we've seen in the public eye. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's true of SJWs. I think it's true of a lot of people who become very radical in their politics, like definitely not all, but people who kind of like start hyper-focusing on certain types of ideologies, they often had something happen to them or, you know, whether it was just something recently in life or maybe their childhood or something, or even like a biological imbalance that they're kind of like using this cause or this lens that they view the world through with like their their political ideology to kind of like try to deal with it or like channel all their angst they're having that's what i think does happen a lot of the time can i um can i step back for a second carter and ask um you can do whatever you want carrie yeah just some context on april and what community she uh is from because we met online and i think I can't remember, it was a mutual friends comment section. And I was like, oh, this girl's smart. And she's, <laughs> she's got uh, some opinions that I share. And I want to, you know, so we started talking and uh, a light on that conversation, just about um, what, what was your background? Cause I was SJW, you know that, like I was full yeah. on a true believer. Where, where were you at and where are you now? I was like a mix of like some type of libertarian most of my my life and my adult life with like like some liberal leaning socially like you know i had like looking back on it like i had like little sjw moments but i think most like empathetic people have sjw moments you know where you get like a little like moment over something you see or some cause you know for a day or a month or something that you know just kind of like gets you going Um, I think I was sort of like that kind of a person um, for a long time, but I was generally, generally speaking, like a lot of my politics used kind of like tended towards libertarian. I haven't been very like hardline total libertarian since I was about 20 years old, because the more time I was in the real world, the more I felt that it wasn't compatible with reality. (laughs) Um, But yeah. (laughs) No, so the more I talk to libertarians, they're kind of like talking to communists. But that's <laughs> hey, hey, now watch it. <laughs> that's 
other subject entirely. I'm I'm um, I'm probably more libertarian than libertarians generally. So I, I this I'm happy, but I'm I'm open to debate. So I'm not uh, religious yeah. about it. So it's like it's you know, and there's a lot of things that I like about it too. You know, it's it's not all of it, but um, you know, there's some things that I, now that it's libertarianism has been getting more popular and vocal since our last election cycle because people are feeling like they're at a lack for options. So. Um, I did get involved for a little while um, trying to help my local Libertarian Party have meetings and things like that. So I wasn't involved in it for very long and I'm still, you know, I'm still in touch with some of those people. They're like all very nice people. Nothing like horrible happened with it, but it was just kind of like the more I talked to these people who were completely immersed in the party and doing things and the more I talked to them about things, I'm like, I don't know how much of a real Libertarian I am at this point. Like this just seems... Some of their stuff, I'm like, it's kind of nuts. I'm like, yeah, I, I get it. <laughs> paper on paper, yeah, it should work. It should. It sh it's supposed to work. It's kind of like talking to some someone who um about their religion. That's mm. kind of how I. Mm. How have you I, changed? Because I don't want to have a libertarian debate. Uh, how have you changed? <laughs> what, what or how you? did how did you start observing? Like where what what part of you is in the SJW world? I guess I put it that way. What part of me well i mean i grew up in the area that i am now which is the boston area which is pretty liberal so you know i i lived here i moved around the area and outside of the city and i lived in south florida for a couple years then i came back <clears throat> florida is very mixed state obviously south florida kind of tends to liberal but it's a little bit of everything you got people from like all over the world there and all over the country and I, you know, I'm back here again, and it does tend to be liberal. So a lot of the people that I grew up around, like, you know, even like a good chunk, not all, but a good chunk of my childhood friends are extremely liberal. Um, you know, so I was always a pretty open person. So I'm lucky I have like a big spectrum of friends, like spectrum of beliefs all over the political, you know, ideologies and all over the, you know, nuances, everything in between. So I'm lucky that I've kept that around me, but I did have a good chunk of extremely liberal people who just were kind of like born and raised in that. And they're just, that's it, you know? So um, that was okay for a long time. It, it, it started to be not okay after Trump got elected. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, you know, and there were even like a couple things, obviously there, there's some things socially I'm still liberal about that I can agree with, you know, but it, um, it just got to be too much, you know, and I, I didn't really... The first glimpse I got of there being a problem was around 2014. Um, some younger people I would talk to me about things they were seeing on college campuses that I think we know more about now, but it wasn't being widely publicized back then. You could go and find it on YouTube, but it wasn't being circulated. It wasn't really being talked about. And it was still kind of like contained onto campus culture or younger people who were being exposed to it. And it was right around, that was right around the time that Black Lives Matter popped up, like suddenly overnight as like a thing all over the country. And one of my friends, younger friends was saying to me like, you know, this is kind of weird. And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of weird, but I also think they kind of have a point. Maybe it might be like this, it might be like that. And then the more they were discussing it with me and kind of showing it to me in context of this SJW culture that was emerging out of colleges, I was like, yeah, this is kind of weird. But part of me was like, yeah, but you know, they're in college, right? Usually mm -hmm. like a lot of college students go through that phase for decades now, we would see some college kids, they'd get really extreme kind of SJW-ish 
and then they quickly outgrow it and they go and they get a job and they just become normal. (laughs) (laughs) That's what it used to be. Remember, right? They they would have that phase and they get over it. Not me. (laughs) Well, that's what I started to notice that because I remember saying that to my younger friends. I'm like, you know, I think this might be calming down, but this does look worse, but, but they're in college still, you know? And he was just like, I don't know, this is something different. And he started showing me more things. And I was like, okay, yeah, we may have something else going on. And then kind of fast forward a few years, it started to kind of like very slowly trickle like into mainstream. Like now, now it's to the point, the whole SJW thing, everybody talks about now, like baby boomers are aware of it now, which is, (laughs) which means they like, you know what I mean? Like a known thing. So, um, but you know, after Trump got elected, you know, it, it, started to like kind of kick up with people in my group like I'm going to be 38 so people in my age group you know just kind of getting like this like crazy moral outrage over things that they weren't even like they were just reacting to they weren't even properly researching um you know like one of my childhood friends stopped talking to me when Trump did the whole he made a tweet about transgender people in the military where he said that there was going to be like a ban on transgender people joining the military. So because, you know, I have that sensitivity, you know, I'm also sensitive. Like, it's not like I don't care about other people or other groups of people. So whenever the news would report this like huge disaster, I would always go, okay, well, that's really happening. Like if we have a president or someone in the White House who's actually like just, just oppressing people and making these horrible policies, like I need to know about it and I need to know more details and I need to know exactly what was written into that policy and who was behind it and who like whatever I can find out you know on the internet or the news so I'd go reading about it with just with the intention to know and I always came back with oh that's not really what happened like Mm. you know people aren't being attacked so like when he made the transgender tweet it was kind of like okay yeah I get it it was kind of crass Trump style like Mm. (laughs) if I was going to make an announcement like that that's not quite how I do it (laughs) So I, I kind of, I, I kind of understood that. But when I went and I read up on it, I was like, that's not exactly what's happening. Like I read into, and I had to go back like several years and into the study that Obama did and how bad that study was that Obama did and how dangerous that and, and careless that study was that Obama did. And really just that it was the military making a plea to Trump to say, can we like redo this with our own studies? We have our own scientists. We have our own people and doctors that can figure out how we can integrate trans the transgender population um in a way that makes sense and that is like sensible and safe for the military and you know so trump was basically saying there's a freeze on transgender enrollment and that's really what it meant was that they were doing more work on it they were they weren't permanently banning transgender people they were kind of just saying we just want the military wants time to take their own look at it and figure out how that will look and how that will roll out and what kind of policies they'll need around that Um, so it was when that happened and I posted something about it on Facebook. This person just completely lost their mind on me. And this is someone I've known since I was 13 and we know each other very well. She knows the kind of person I am inside out, upside down. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, to know me as a person and like my habits and my mannerisms, I'm the furthest thing from some like extreme right wing bigoted person and, you know, (laughs) You're not a trans bigot is what you're telling us. She knows. You know, she knows. She knows. She should know that. She should know Mm -hmm. that. 
I've dated men, I've dated women, I've dated transgender people before that was trendy to be transgender, like <laughs> anybody was talking about that. Um, you know, there were a lot of things that, you know, about me. So yeah, she, she it was just kind of surprising to see like how in this frenzy she was over it and that she completely decided to stop talking to me over this. Um, and I, I let her because I'm like, this is just something that this is like, it's like losing someone to an addiction or something like mm -hmm. it's something that just takes somebody over and there's only so much I can do about it. I mean, I could have probably tried to be the one to like extend an olive leaf and say, Hey, do you want to talk about this more? But I was kind of like, she just started to become so inappropriate. I felt like it was a non-workable situation. So, I mean, that's when I kind of realized, you know, I mean, I, mean, I, I realized things were getting intense, but that's when I realized like, you know, my life was going to change over this. And a lot of people's lives were changing over this. But that was, I think, a couple of years ago now. So, Comparing it to an addiction, I think is, I think that's a great analogy. It's an, it's, I've sometimes compared it to a virus or a sickness, but mm -hmm. you know, it just, it, it takes over um, and it becomes the lens through which they view everything. And there is something there. You said she went into a frenzy. There's something there that's, uh, uh, I don't know if like the, the, the fact that it's happening collectively, it, people are like feeding off, uh, like, like mob mentality, they're feeding off of each other's energy and, and uh, outrage over it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It escalates. And getting it back to mental illness, because we're not even talking about people who are like out going to rallies or still in college and around like the group frenzy. This is somebody in, you know, just as an example, but this person has obsessive compulsive disorder and, you know, it's not specifically managed or medicated. Like, you know, she's not in any kind of treatment for it. She knows that she has it. It was diagnosed. This is somebody who has this disorder. She's otherwise functional. Like she can keep a job. She's married. She has kids, but it impacts her all the time. And like growing up, I know her very well. So it's like, you know, none of us are perfect. Like we all, we all have friends with like idiosyncrasies. So it was like, I would know about these things that I would make her do. And there were certain things I don't want to get like completely into her business, but there were like addictive tendencies she had too. And things that were literally just explosive compulsive things. It's like, like, like such a disorder would prompt. So it is like, there's like a link there. It's like people who have these, um, I, I do think that people who have these kind of like mental proclivities are more susceptible to it. So actually, Carrie, you've talked about in, in the past, you've talked about um, mental illness or, or even just emotional trauma or personal issues being kind of a badge of honor in the social justice camp. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, it's, another, it's another group to be in when you're looking at intersectionality, if you can add on, well, I also have uh, borderline personality disorder, therefore I'm even more oppressed. Um, is this, do you think this is, is related? Is it, is it, does it create a culture where um, it's actually not fashionable to treat the illness? Because if you, if you heal, then you're no longer a victim. Yeah, I mean, I've you and I have seen um, 
uh, profiles like that even where in their identity on Twitter, people are putting all their different categories of impression. You know, it's like black, queer, woman, uh, anxiety disorder, and OCD. And, and, it, and it's listed as, you know, this is one way in which, uh, another way in which I'm oppressed. And because it's a social currency to be oppressed within the ideology, I think it encourages, I, I think A, it exploits any existing mental illness that a person has, but it also encourages them to stay in it. So there's not as much of an incentive to get better because it's, they're telling people this is part of your identity. Like, mm -hmm. like stay in it. Mm -hmm. Something that's striking me as uh, related is, you know, in the past when you, when you went to college, I mean, certainly I was much more of an ideologue when I went to college. I think as a lot of, you know, freshmen going in, they think they know everything. And, um, and I had to be confronted with arguments that I hadn't thought of and things that were offensive to me. And um, I changed, I wouldn't say maybe during, I changed a little bit during college, but by the time I graduated, like after college, I, I made a pretty radical shift in, in my belief system. And on, I think I became much more open-minded and much more uh, willing to hear arguments and opinions that I disagreed with or even was maybe offended by, but I wanted to kind of understand um, and to some extent, doing that forces you to confront your own demons, because often when we react to something we don't like, it's, it's an emotional reaction. It's based on something that's, we're not reacting to what's happening in the moment. We're reacting to something else uh, that's in the past. And, and to realize like, oh, I'm, I'm behaving irrationally. I'm, I'm acting irrationally. I'm reacting irrationally to this um, kind of forces some introspection and some growth. But if you're in a, in a college community, which I think most most colleges are, are like this now. If you're in a college community in which um, you're being protected from hearing anything that you disagree with or that confronts preconceived notions or that um, just upsets you in any way, and if and if you can just say, "Hey, Ben Shapiro couldn't shouldn't come speak on campus because I because I'm I'm triggered," and and you've got university administrators who will back you up on that and say, yes, you should be coddled and protected from, from these things. It, it means that you never really have to deal with any of the issues that um, your own kind of personal psychology, you, you never have to have that right. introspective look at yourself. Right, right. I used a term the other day about the IEPs that kids get put on now that they're, they're not taught to, you know, like they say in 12 step groups, leave, meet life on life's terms. Um, you know, or meet your environment on the environment's terms. No, what is an what is an IEP? Individualized education plan. So it's, uh. it's what they do in schools now. Well, technically, I think they've existed since the seventies, but now the way they do it is um, they're more common. So you know, on one hand, it can be good because they got better at diagnosing kids with things. You know, like you could know that your five-year-old has Asperger's or ADHD. So it's kind of good to have that knowledge now where we didn't like 25 years ago, but now they have this thing where um, a parent can go ask for an IEP and legally they have to be given the IEP. So then the teacher's forced to follow the IEP and the IEP will have like certain guidelines in it that are specific to um, whatever the diagnosis was. Wow. Okay. So I heard some teachers in South Carolina talking about this when I was uh, home last year. And I didn't know the word for it, but they were talking about how it's getting so hard to control students because they each have their own diagnosis. And, the, and so if the guy 
let's say a student throws violent tantrums, tantrums in class, they can't punish him because that's part of his diagnosis that he throws violent right. tantrums. Right, right. No, and that's that's part of it. And there are some variations state to state. And I'm not a teacher, so don't quote me too much on this. I'm just telling you off of what I know from what I've seen. My partner's a teacher because I'm a Montessori teacher. He's not in a public school. And then I had, you know, a lot of family members, um, <clears throat> you know, younger kids in my family. Some of them were on IEPs and the stuff. So I do have familiarity on it through that. And it is this thing where it's like, you know, if you like take a step back and look at it, ideally, it should probably be that the teachers are good enough at what they do and have enough familiarity with you, with different disorders that it can be left to their discretion how they want to reach that kid and manage that kid. And maybe they do want to tailor things for that kid, which is okay, but it should be like a case-by-case -case basis that the teacher can control. Um, but it's kind of like they've taken that trust away and going, well, it's the child's right to have, mm -hmm. or you know, the parent's right to request for it to be handled like X, Y, and Z. And obviously there are things you can like argue for the benefits of that. Like I, you know, I get it. And like, I had a ton of stuff that wasn't diagnosed as a kid. Like, I get it. Like, I still, you know, I have things that I, and I have like a severe sleep disorder. There's so many things like when I was a kid that now would have been like, I would have been in a sleep study. I would have had all kinds of evaluate, like they did evaluate me when I was a kid, but the way they did it was differently back then. So they, you know, they didn't really see everything and they didn't know how to look for certain things, but you know, like going back to like when I was in grade school in the eighties, but like, so there's like arguments you can make like, oh yeah, you know, that's great that, you know, to like be aware of something and then figure out workarounds. But, but then it just turns into like accommodating it and kind of like cushioning it. And that doesn't work either. And yeah. I'm seeing with like, you know, <clears throat> in my job, you know, you can tell the kids that come out of college that were on these IEPs, you can tell them because they can't handle anything. <laughs> Some of them are very nice kids and they're, you know, they're not jerks or anything they just can't they can't adapt they can't like move quickly they can't they don't respond to stress the same way you know so that's kind of sad so then you know you wonder you know is it's it just a skill a, they don't get to practice it's just a total trade-off then you know one of the big ones is like the way that they give extra time kids with autism and adhd get extra time to finish things i'm like how does that prepare them at all for the real world like how does that even i i was I, this young girl was working with me and she was like, you know, well, I had, you know, in college, in high school, they gave me extra time to finish things. So I need more time to make my sales goals. I'm like, that's, no, <laughs> <laughs> no one gives a shit. No Sorry. Gives a shit. <laughs> I don't care. I need you to make numbers. I don't care. Yeah. So, yeah that's it's not that's helping cool. them. That's for sure. No, I mean, it, and it could be like, I get the, the idea of it, you know, but <clears throat> is it really no probably I don't I don't know that it's helping them enough it's it could be helping them if you have like <clears throat> all the right ingredients I don't think the IEP is like a measuring stick to be like oh yeah we're definitely fixing this more for everyone across the board it's you know the cocktail of like parents being involved the right way and understanding things the right way and then having teachers who can really get it and get it for that kid and you know it's like the whole the whole group being involved for that kid. It's not like an IEP is going to magically fix it. It doesn't. Well, and it seems like it could be making it worse because you're mm -hmm. not exposing them to, uh, as I think Carrie just said, you're not exercising that muscle. So, um, <laughs> you know, 
it seems like if you've got ADHD and that causes you to take more time to do things, then the workaround is teach them how to get things done and commit to things that they know they can do um, in, a, in whatever time frame, so that when they get out in the real world, they're not missing deadlines. Maybe they have to say like, well, I, I can't work for you. If those are my sales goals, like I can't meet those sales goals. So I guess I need a different job. Like that's not like knowing where, knowing their limits. Exactly. Know your limitations or learn how to push them and so you can manage them differently. So you can kind of not, maybe not be as limited in some ways at least, right? Mm -hmm. Just just make it work. <laughs> right. I mean, it, it would be unthinkable for us that if there was someone, for example, who uh, was physically handicapped saying, well, I, I plan to play in the NBA when I graduate, so I need a special IEP for uh, basketball and like I need right. special permission. So, and then, you know, then they get out and they go to the NBA and like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, my baskets should be 20 points each. And also I should get the, like rocket shoes yeah. and whatever. It's like, well, that's not how it works. You're just going to be well, disappointed. Yeah. It's a similar idea. It's also the idea that like, yeah, in a lot of kids with these things, they do have talents and they do have strengths. It would be better to just like work with those talents and be like, okay, well, how can you make this into maybe a career? or build this into something that you can eventually monetize. I mean, it's like, I remember hearing from someone who took the Gallup survey. I haven't taken it myself, but I, I spoke with someone who's very into the Gallup survey and the people behind that. They said that when you spend time on things that you're not good at over like, say like several weeks, you improve in that thing, maybe 10, 15%. When you spend that same amount of time on something you're already good at it, you improve in it maybe a thousand times. So there's that too like okay well what don't you suck at there are things yeah. that you and don't i mean look there's there's plenty of especially in the creative fields i mean there's plenty of massively dysfunctional artists um who yep. are who are also fabulously wealthy and successful they just mm -hmm. they know their limitations and they have business managers and and other people around them and you know maybe they can't even make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich but damn they can write lyrics and that's or whatever it is it's like okay that's they've that they've made that their career get good at that right yeah and that i yeah that, i'm a big believer in that and um yeah going back to all this stuff like wearing your mental illness like a badge yeah that's a thing now and we're seeing it a big place that people are seeing it now are on dating apps dating sites oh tell me <laughs> about this i've not heard this <laughs> in this i see this because Okay, I think I narrowly missed this because I met my partner about three years ago and we did meet online, but it was kind of like we met like in that year before the presidential campaign started and right before that or around when that stuff was ramping up, something like that kind of time frame. So it wasn't getting like to that, th th this thing that exploded afterwards. But now a lot of my single friends that are on these apps, you open them up and it'll be the first thing on their profile. They'll be like, because you know how sometimes they'll do like bullets, you know, it'll be like, mom dog lover whatever whatever now it'll be you know bipolar disorder <laughs> and it is it's like they're just like, run screaming yeah, yeah, me. you know like this is <laughs> like that's okay great or they like putting queer on everything now which is really easy to make fun of because queer is like it's not even a very definable word right. like what what is that i mean that's okay you can call yourself that but it's just okay you human know, it's on, it's on, yeah like human it's on your dating profile it should be saying something about you and it's like a little unclear what that means now so there's no there's that kind of a thing where it's like this is part of my identity 
And yeah, it's, it's, it's just gotten very strange. It's gotten very strange. Um, I'm not entirely sure where it's going. <laughs> I think I, it's almost like the, uh, we, we did a whole episode about the uh, uh, body positivity movement um, and about how you start, it's almost like you start with a, a noble goal, which is to destigmatize mental illness, for example, or to um, uh, stop shaming people for being overweight, which are both noble goals to encourage people to accept themselves so that they can get healthier. But that noble goal is then taken to the extreme where it's like, uh, it's not just that we're going to destigmatize mental illness, it's that we're going to tell you that it's a perfectly acceptable long-term way to live and to celebrate it and encourage it. And the same thing with obesity. It's like, now I'm seeing articles saying that there's nothing that that actual scientific facts that it you know don't exist that it that it's that it's not unhealthy for you, um, and so it, they they start with something noble and then they push it to such an extreme it it uh, uh, and then if you try to criticize it they go back to that original noble goal, and they're like well you must be trying to stigmatize mental illness or you must be trying to fat shame it's like no, and it's so much emotional labor with these people <laughs> yes to walk through it with them and try to like maybe correct it or even get to like bridge that space to them being like no 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 i'm not against having like some compassion and some acceptance but x y and z and it's so much emotional labor to connect with those people in that way if it even works which it might not work or mm -hmm. you know they'll have very levels of success or they'll finally you know after half an hour they're like oh okay and the next day they're just talking about the same thing you know <laughs> and it's mm -hmm all right, this is just normal for a lot of people to think this way now. I, you know, I don't, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to excuse the, the, the people on the right that are also kind of ideologues and, and, and we'll say crazy to some extent, but I, I do think the left has had this perceived monopoly on empathy for decades. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and there's this, at least among the left, there's this assumption that if you don't agree with them, you're not an empathetic person. And mm -hmm. I think um, having not been really on the left, I mean, I was classical liberal for a while. I guess that's as close as I, I get to being on the left. But um, I don't see that on, on the right. I don't, see, I don't see that in the center. I don't see that elsewhere in kind of classical liberals and stuff. I don't see people saying, oh, they want... Uh, I don't know. Oh, they want welfare. They must hate poor people and want to keep them in a poor life. It's like, no, like we don't say that. We just say you're probably just misinformed. Let me explain to you why the Green New Deal is a bad idea or whatever it is. We don't. People don't assume that they're just evil-hearted, cold, like cold-hearted uh, sociopaths. But the left seems to assume that anyone who disagrees with them is evil. Evil. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, they, they take a lot of moral high ground, like the religious right used to a long time ago. Yeah, um, that, that's what struck a chord for a lot of people with Jordan Peterson, even though he's very he has a lot of limitations too. Um, and there's been since he like became mainstream, I still like that he's there and that he exists. But he's he's kind of disappointed myself and some people in ways with what we thought he was going to continue to do, go on to do. But he, what people have liked about him is that he has that just like devastatingly reasonable <laughs> way of mm -hmm. saying things that you have to go into like every single thing they say prefacing it with 
oh no, I get your concern. I want poor people fed too, but this is why this particular plan won't work. Look at what happens. Like you have to break it all down to them, but you have to like put that again. It's like the labor is on us to kind of like, it's like talking to small children. Oh, it is. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's an insult to small children, but <laughs> <laughs> even they're easy, right? <laughs> I know. I, I, I'm, I'm actually serious about that. I mean, I, like kids tend to be, kids don't just assume you're evil if you disagree. If you say, well, that's just not the best way to do it, in my opinion. They're like, mm -hmm. oh, okay. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah. there, there is something about, um, I, I mean, there's, there's got, it's got to be feeding some, this reaction has to be feeding some psychological need where they, they, they need to get angry. They need to call you evil. They need to feel, uh, I, I don't know what it is. I'm not a, therapist or a psychologist but it's got to be triggered it's got to be fulfilling a need psychologically but, right it's also stimulating I mean, that kind of anger and, and angst and all that stuff is very stimulating what do you mean um, by stimulating well if you're you know chemically deficient in some serotonin or you know and anything like that even bad things make you feel good like they found that in studies like mm -hmm. that's get addicted to negativity because it still creates like there's this whole thing about when we were hunter gatherers and lived in the wild everything gave us a dopamine rush because it was a survival situation a lot of fight or flight things we were presented with every day so you would get like if something great happened you got a dopamine rush if something horrible happened you still had this impetus to survive it and like run away or do something and you still get a dopamine rush for it they found that our, our brain is still the same from that because we haven't that was like on the evolutionary timeline. It was like 30 seconds ago. We were living right. in hunter gatherers, still hunter gatherers. So, you know, our brains are designed to get like a hit of these chemicals for like any kind of like stimulating situation. And that that's a lot of stimulation right there. So that explains a lot of drama. Oh, oh yeah. Create drama, even the way that we watch soap operas, the way people, um, all kinds of addictions, even people who like cut themselves because that was one of the first places they started to notice that was something weird going on. They were like, well, they're cutting, but when they cut, they get this like euphoric feel after they self-harm. And they're, you know, they're actually getting their brain is like releasing more dopamine again. Um, and they used to think that was something I remember reading, there were some studies suggesting they thought that was a unique problem to cutters, but then they found out later on, they're like, no, like we're all doing this all the time. <laughs> and like, all, you know, some, some people have like a, a better, more, homeostasis in their mental biology where there aren't as many extremes and they're not seeking as many extremes they don't seek as much you know novelty seeking and all that kind of um, stimulating activity that's more disruptive um, but a lot of us do because that, that's just how we used to live so yeah no feeling like some, you're, you're, you're on a moral outrage or something's happening to you and you're surviving it and all that kind of stuff really it's addictive well, that's pretty I depressing. I don't, I don't know how we're going to solve that. Well, we have ways to solve. We already have ways to solve it. It's just people don't want to put the work in. I mean, like a lot of like successful world religions have presented ways to survive that with like meditation and prayer and all that kind of a thing to kind of like, you know, it puts you in habits that kind of keep resetting your brain. Um, and then just like healthy habits, like exercising and things like that, that still give you that chemical release or that, you know, maybe it's like, you know, it could be, if, as long as you're not deep end addicted to it, maybe it's playing video games or, you know, like right. things that are okay to do for like a half an hour here and there. But there's like, there's ways you can get that. And like, if you keep like 
a good community around yourself. You have some good friends and you go out and do things or you have a family that's healthy. There's ways to do it. It's just. I think this is why they're, um, it's also <laughs> SJW ideology is very anti-exercise and they're anti-prayer. Uh, I didn't know this. It's anti-exercise? Oh yeah, this this is related to the body positivity movement we talked about. They, if you talk about exercise in a positive way, they say you're triggering them. They don't want to hear about your body success. They don't want to hear about your exercise. Um, there's just this really negative way of talking about it, as if only only a meathead or only you know would care about exercising, and and it, it's denigrated in a way. So exercise is denigrated. Prayer is denigrated. We see that all the time. And we don't want your thoughts and prayers kind of thing. Um, it's looked at in a negative way. Um, and then the weird thing is there are some areas like meditation that doesn't, they don't have that same level of denigration for meditation yet. Um, but they're starting to have it for yoga. And the way they're doing it for yoga is by saying that everyone is culturally appropriating yoga. Right. Therefore, if you're doing yoga, you must be a racist white woman. And it's this idea of like, don't talk about yoga either. So it's, you just mentioned some very healthy ways that people can reset their brain the way you put it. And it's in a, in a lot of those ways, um, they're kind of culturally within the SJW culture, they're taboo. You're not supposed to talk about your exercise or your prayer or, or engage in it, you know? They're often against families too. I mean, because mm. they're into, you know, like, sure, like gay people getting married and adopting kids, that's great. You know, but they're, they're against a lot of the things that kind of support and allow for families to happen and to be together and stay together, you know, mm -hmm. and stay close and loyal to each other, which also gives you that kind of like mental stability, um, you know, so no, no I, I see it. I see what they're doing. And I, you know, like there was always those little undercurrents of things that were like, like you said, like, oh, yeah, no, 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 you have a point there. And now they've just gone totally crazy. Like, I remember being really into yoga eight years ago. And there'd be that occasional blog of someone like making fun of it, like how funny it is that in the West we're into it and we, we don't even understand the philosophy behind it the right way. And it's like, oh no, yeah, that's true. You have a point. Like, I remember like reading that stuff and being like, oh, you know, that's, but now it's just like, it's stupid. Now, mm -hmm. now it's just, okay, so we won't do anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we won't borrow anything good from any other cultures. And then we will be ashamed of our own culture as well. And we will just have nothing to make you happy. <laughs> yeah, except weird, dopamine those hits. Are same, those are the same people that generally really stress how much the U.S. is a melting pot, and and it is in many ways. But like, if if we're not allowed to take other ingredients and put it in the pot and melt it, then like, then what are we? <laughs> like, they don't view it as a melting pot. They view it as a salad. Yeah, that's the problem. What's the like, difference? Oh, wait. oh a I melting see. Salad, pot. You still tomatoes are still separate from the lettuce. Yes. In the salad. Yes, they view it like a salad, and everything has is just remains separate from each other, but all together. A melting pot means that we borrow from each other's cultures and we trade and and we become a and cohesive. We evolve together as our own. And we evolve together, and we we have a cohesive fondue, unity. It's like like if you look at tribalism and the things that unite us. If a melting pot is a great analogy because it's like America is a melting pot. Yes, you're bringing in all these different people from different countries, but we're all assimilating into one united tribe. And then we have the smaller tribes underneath. They view it like a salad. There is no united tribe. That's what they hate. They don't like any type of patriotism because I, they don't view that, that I don't united. Even view it really as patriotism. I mean, I don't view us united under a flag. I view us united under. Uh, the ideas of the enlightenment right we're in like we're, we're 
we're united under this idea that there's individual rights and and limited government and like those are they don't believe in that stuff special things yeah i, I get that <laughs> but uh but that's the melting that's the melting pot interesting no but they don't realize, they, 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 they don't realize that that's where all of this was spawned from they don't want to acknowledge that that's where that's the stem of all of this is um the enlightenment period individual sovereignty all that stuff is what makes it possible the, the idea of a social contract is why right. you have people of different backgrounds come together and like share this unity of like one country and kind of become the same culture the whole point was to become the same culture that was part of the social contract the yeah. social contract wasn't to say like okay we're gonna all stay so totally separate and we're gonna be like a salad and we're, or we're gonna be it's funny you said salad because the other day i was talking about like slice different slices from different pies like mm. we have to be an equally measured slice <laughs> and it has to be its own thing and it has to be that's that's really not and that doesn't measure the value of a country either like oh the u.s isn't as good because there aren't these perfectly equal slices of each type of cheesecake and that why why does that make it less you know at what point is diversity just a joke on itself because if it's forced diversity is it diversity anymore if it's just like you know the rainbow they use that has like perfectly measured amounts of the same color if everything is like that is it diversity anymore? No. Yeah, you know, you're no. you're you're reminding me of an opinion that I have, which is probably uh, will get me called lots of nasty names. But I, I've been thinking about this with respect to Europe. So when I was younger, I spent a lot of time, uh, not a lot, but I, I traveled a lot for business, and I was in lots of different countries in Europe. And one of the things I liked about it was, uh, you know, France was France, and Italy is Italy, and they're very different, and Greece is Greece, and the UK was the UK. Um, but there seems to also be this push that like, they want everything to be all one salad. Like if to use Carrie's analogy, like France is, they, they want France to be the same salad as Italy, which is the same salad as Greece, which is the same salad. Like when you, when you don't let people isolate cultures and protect their culture, right? Which the French, for example, were, have been very good at historically, right? They, they have uh, rules about language and everything else are very, snobby and there's things I don't like about the French culture, but it's the French culture and you can go experience it. And I kind of, I wonder about my daughter growing up. I'm like, will she really get to experience these other cultures? Cause they're all kind of collapsing into this salad of a bunch of stuff. And if it's a salad, then what's the difference between France and Italy at some point? It's like, it, it, it won't. There's balance there. They're going too far the other way. Cause some, it's good to have some protectionism than not. But we also know that when cultures go total isolationist, eventually that's not good. Right. And, so, and, and so I don't I don't disagree with that at all. Yeah. That gets bad too. But we're going too far the other way. It's just like, hey, who cares about identity is fluid. It's like, no, it's not. <laughs> it's not. Like I'm more apt to agree with you that these countries should be protecting themselves a little better. Um, <clears throat> and that it's just an anthropo anthropological reality we can't really get away from, right? People you know do that when they yeah. have, you know, a sort of shared identity, you know, and, and some values that they all agree on and kind of it creates more trust. We, we know these things. So people do better with these things. So and then you start to put on your tinfoil hat, even though you don't want to and wonder why are all these countries being pressured into taking in all of these cultures and some of them are, are bad cultures. And you're not allowed to, to say bad cultures, though, April. That's uh... you should be able to 
say that. We should be able to say that because okay. cultures aren't equal. There's practices that are better than others. And right. why are all of these countries suddenly like, you know, especially the westernized countries being pressured, like, like it's a moral obligation to take in people from all these places, just like in a very raw sense, not like, like just indiscriminately not like, well, yeah, no, we'll, we will selectively let people in who seem to um, merit based. You know, merit-based you know have something to offer have their p's and q's together a little bit and you know we we understand why they want to come here and what they want to do um just bring them in like just just ship them in just ship them in and drop them here you know you start wondering why are they doing it to all these countries you know and it's creepy i mean i'm not saying i know i'm not saying that it's like the illuminati alien people taking us over but it is creepy. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I wouldn't, I don't want to tinfoil hat it either, but I, I do think that fundamentally the social, and I've said this before, Carrie and I have talked about this, I think the social justice ideology at its core is not about building anything, it's about destruction of Western civilization. And so they don't care. They're, they, they, they want people in specifically to destroy Western civilization. After that, what it is is not, that there's, there's no goal, they're not trying to build a particular thing. Um, They'll use cultural relativism to destroy, like, other cultures. Yeah, that's why I mean, they don't complain about, like, when you were saying, like, they complain about prayers, but not meditation. Well, that's why. They're starting to complain about yoga because too many white women do it. Like, that's why. Like, it's, right. that's why they attack it. Right. I mean, I think, you know, when I follow it through, you know, if you, when you destroy a strong culture, they're just easier to control. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. It's simple as that. It's as simple right. as that. They're easier to control. They're easier to um, take money from, you know, just take yep. everything from. So I think that's, I mean, I think ultimately that's kind of what's behind it. I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not saying I know, like, what the, you know, um, any more details than that. It's just I can't make any other sense of it except the fact that obviously the people influencing it and financing it, they're educated people. They're, you know, in different countries. Some of them are here. Some of them are in Europe. They're, they're very educated people. And I don't know why else they would be pushing for this. It's, it's a power play, I think. Yeah. Carrie, what do you think? I think it's a power play, but, but more than that, I mean, I have a friend who's like, do you think people are sitting in back rooms plotting? And I'm like, no, it's just that, that that's not what I mean. It's, it, it, people tend towards people at the top. Sometimes are people in control. Not always at the top. There's not always... Um, uh, what's the word? There's not always corruption, you know, in a hierarchy. But if there is corruption in a hierarchy, you're going to see people at the top who, of course, are making decisions that make it easier for them to control, like you said, large populations. But more than that, I think it's that ideology itself. People, ideology is almost like a living thing. And so a lot of times it has end goals that the little individual foot soldiers aren't even right. cognizant of. And so it's like a school of fish or something. You're all swimming towards this destination, but you're not really aware of what the ultimate end goals are. You're just kind of talking with your buddy about, you know, how woke you are today. You're not really focusing on the big picture. It's just these little individual outrages and everything you choose to push on an individual day has repercussions way down the road, but you can't see what those are yet. Yeah, I think and there I are think very few people who even could see that or would want to see that and, and could could even con like could even contemplate the big picture where this could go right but I mean, if you do contemplate it or if you talk about it like we do um you have to figure out how to talk about it in a way 
that makes sense. This is what, this goes back to what April was saying about um, like talking to children. And I think what she meant there, at least I was hearing is like talking in a way that doesn't sound like you're a tin foil hatter. Cause there's, if you, if you, if you say too much of this, you know, you know, people are like, oh, you're crazy. It's like, no, I'm just trying to explain this big picture view um, in a way that makes sense. And, and you can't give like, you know, it's like, oh, the Marxists are trying to destroy the world. And we were like, oh, right. you're crazy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's what's happening now is now the right is starting to go crazy with it. They're actually starting to go crazy. It's just starting. But now we've got now we've got all these race realists popping up all over the place. Mm -hmm. Like I'm talking to them online. They're on my page. You may have seen them like jump in on my page. It's like, you know, and, and there's like buried in there. They do kind of have a point, but everything else around it and their end solution that they want really isn't good either <laughs> oh yeah i've seen these there's one on my wall and sh i understand i think she's a great case study because she used to be an sjw and now she's become like identity politics but on the other side and is right. talking about wanting to have a white nation state and things like that and i'm like identity politic sjw yep. yes yeah. you you should talk speak to that april because i think when we you and i first talked you had a great point about how you started to see some former SJWs who are now um, behaving in all the same ways. They're just focusing their ideology around anti-SJWism or... So uh, I had an experience with um, a group of people who were seeing this, you know, happen and they were definitely otherwise liberal in many ways, culturally liberal, their interests, their personality, a lot of their values, <clears throat> liberal but they started to see how crazy this was going. And you know, it's like just as much mental illness there, the SJWs, because it's almost like two mentally ill people, when you think of two mentally ill people throwing stones at each other to feel better about themselves or the way mentally ill people project things on each other. Um, so it's almost like they're opposing that SJW agenda, but in a weird way, it is like a sort of infighting and it is their own kind of obsession to be like, oh, now the SJWs are doing this, now they're doing that. Um, you know, one of the people I got close to was, who was very like funny and charismatic. And, you know, this was somebody who podcasted too. And, you know, it was like a lot of great insights there, a lot of great points, a lot of great kind of seeing what people like us are going through, being alienated from friends and all this kind of a thing. And, um, would go on at great length about like how pathological that behavior is. And then the more I got to know him, I'm like, but you're kind of a sociopath too. Like, <laughs> He was kind of like, nobody was projecting all of it on these, because it's like the SJW culture is very empathy-based, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of people in the SJW culture who are legitimately empathetic and their empathy's been hijacked. Then you've got people who are just being manipulative and they're acting like they're nice. But just like, again, if you go back to the old time religious, right? You had those people who became pastors or were like volunteering at the church the most who were really horrible people. And they were really just stepping into it the most to look like a good person and to um, take advantage of people's vulnerabilities and gain trust. So it's like the SJW culture is similar where there's a lot of, there's people with good intentions in there. You have these like the grass, you know how those jokes they make about male feminists now being yes. like closet rape, kind of like that. So he was very hung up on calling that out, but he thinks they're all like, he's, he is projecting himself on all of it. Like assuming anybody Anybody standing up saying, this has hurt me. Anybody standing up saying, well, I want something done because this group is being hurt. I'm being hurt. He assumed all of them are lying. Because he was. 
that's who he is. That's who he was as an SJW. He was one of the ones with bad intent. Yeah. And he, you know, everything he did, you know, the the more I kind of like, because this was somebody I knew in real life too. It wasn't just like an internet connection, but um, he had like a little discussion group on Facebook and he would podcast. And it was really just that. I mean, it was really just his, his fixation on thinking everybody is lying. And it, you know, at first, you know, people were like, oh, this guy's kind of funny. He's charismatic. Then it, then it got dark. And then, you know, a lot of the people gravitating towards him were like crazy people too. Um, so that's a whole other like phenomenon that's like, I think sprung up around this, <laughs> that, you know, these, these other crazy people who are just, you know, there is something about that though. I mean, like, even for me, I mean, I don't think I'm a sociopath, but I can look at that SJWs and be like, I see you. You know, like I see what you, you know what I mean? Like you're, yeah. you're, you're just stuck in your head about something and you, you haven't realized it yet. And I see it. And like a lot of like normal mainstream people don't see it. They just think, oh, they're saying they're hurting. This thing must actually be hurting them. So it would be the right thing to just agree with them and just give them what they want. Because clearly something's hurting them. And it's like, uh, it's not that simple. <laughs> That's fascinating to me, this whole conversation, because you're right. It is projection. And I talk a lot about on this podcast, how I think there are roughly two groups of people and SJWs, the ones who with good intent, which are like the, the tools uh, or the PC liberals. And then the ones with bad intent who are the bad actors or the um, uh, PC authoritarians. And so this guy was one of the bad actors. And so now that he's on the other side of it and he's anti-SJW, he's, he views everyone who's in it as being a bad actor because that's what he was. And um, mm-hmm. I think that's really, and that's I think what yeah, that's I think it's really interesting because those bad actors, they're not true believers and they're opportunists. So now that they're starting to be more people speaking against or waking up to what SJW ideology really is and speaking out against it in good faith, um, then you're going to get those opportunists going, Hey, wait a minute, maybe I, I, I'm, I'm over here trying to use this ideology for more power for me or for virtue signal for me or whatever these bad reasons are that I'm in this belief system. But look, there's a growing resistance to it. Why don't I join the resistance and be just as much of a bad actor? (laughs) But you know, I can make money from it. I can make a name for myself and that in the anti-SJW world. And those people, I don't know this person you're talking about specifically, but those people um, terrify me, whether they're on the SJW side or the anti-SJW side, because you don't represent me, dude. Like, (laughs) don't. Yeah. They, just, they create problems. I mean, they have like a minute there where maybe they have good, because people like that are very intelligent too. It's like, they have the minute of like, oh, you're, you're, you're offering some good insights. I get it. You know? And then the, the more they gain traction with people, it's just, it's not good. Right. And there's a danger there of, especially if they've gone over to the anti-SJW side of once they're exposed, it's just opportunists of people writing off all of the valid criticisms of the SJW ideology and lumping it all in with those people, you know, the same way that Christianity gets lumped in with the snake oil salesman Christians. Right. Exactly. Right. Yep. So you brought up, I, I, I have, it's this, it sounds similar as an atheist to me. It sounds, the whole thing sounds very similar to um, religious dogma where it's like, well, I was, uh, I was a Zoroastrian yesterday, but uh, the Muslims are taking over. So now I'm a Muslim and there's no, I don't see it as something where there's a lot of critical thought going on. It's just, um, it's replacing critical thought with, with an ideology. And 
the fundamental issue isn't their specific ideology, it's ideological thinking. And that person really isn't changing at all. They're just hopping from one ideology to another. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, yes. that's, but that's what I think is happening, yeah. Yes, that's what I think is happening. Um, it's ideology hopping, but with this specific sort of, I guess, personnel. Sorry, my cat's meowing, if you hear my cat. With this, <laughs> this <laughs> she's like walking around me meowing right now. Um, so with this specific personality profile, it is like, like um, Carrie said, it's opportunism where they jump from one ideology to the other. Um, you know, and it, it's opportunism and projecting in this particular kind of person we're discussing. But, um, you know, there's people who, I think there's, there's a lot of different types of crazy that ideology hop, though. <laughs> so mm -hmm. do you think that there's more ideology uh, or more ideological thought now than there used to be? Or do you think that we're just seeing it more now? Um, or, or I don't know. Do you, is it, is it, has, it got, has the problem gotten worse? And if so, why? That's a good question. I, it might just be that it's more visible because of the internet. You know, I remember reading about this 10, like 10, maybe a little over 10 years ago, you know, people talking about how America was already starting to break off into these little cults because you could see more and more um, division within like by neighborhood, like you know, we had red states and blue states, but then you just kind of had more, more people kind of contracting into themselves, into people who think like them, even like living in neighborhoods that tended to be like more liberal, like going to neighborhoods that were more conservative, people like being, starting to be very mindful of that, which is, that's like really huge. If like where you're picking to live and you're picking at a house, you're trying to make sure there's a good school, you're doing all these other things. And then you're also being mindful of like, that your neighbor has like the same politics you do, like is kind of like, like you know, that that was getting big 10 years ago hmm. is really telling. I don't think people were as, people were into their politics, but I don't think they were hung up on the tribal part of it as much, like say 25 years ago, hmm. um, I don't think. So- It, it seems like I, it's, it, it implies that um, there's not a shared set of moral beliefs Right. I feel like in the past there was kind of this shared set of moral beliefs and then the, there would be Democrats and Republicans arguing about the best ways to tactically implement um, legislation or, or whatever that, that manifests those beliefs. But if people are starting to separate, it's, it seems like that's got to be a consequence. Like, why would I only want to live in a neighborhood with a certain kind of political thought? Well, it's only because I, I, I must view that political thought as as – uh, morally different from the other side's political yeah. thought, right? Kind of, kind of like the parties have started to jump on totally different pages um, and view each other as morally inferior, even though, excuse me, I still hold out hope that it's more kind of like, I still think most people are basically good. They're, we're just broken into very radically different looking ways of getting there, you know, where you could say, you could still have a Republican and a Democrat talk and say, agree, you know, again, bringing up like welfare or something. Yeah, no, I, I want poor people fed. Like, I, I don't want people starving to death. We have different ideas of how to arrive there. Um, but you don't see conversations start out that way anymore, even among politicians, even when politicians are like trying to get together and come to agreement and create policy or when they're debating for elections, you don't see many of them kind of 
extend the conversation that way. Like, well, we both want to come to this conclusion. How can we get there? It's kind but of my opponent that. is wrong about his methods. Instead, you it's, hear my opponent is evil. Is evil, right. Yeah, that's a good way to summarize it, I think. Um, so there's a lot of that. So then that's trickled down to the public. So the public's treating each other that way, and it, it's not good. Well, <laughs> you could argue that the public voted for those people, and maybe those people are manifest of something that's already was there. Could be. I mean, I kind of buy into the idea that um, we still we're still dealing with like, and, and it's other things too. I think we're still dealing with the after effects of like what the Russians did to us in the fifties and sixties. Can you be like specific? Because I think you set, you sound like a tinfoil hat wearing person now. So <laughs> let, yeah, let no, people I, know what you're talking about. The way that they the way that they influenced academia, the way that they influenced, you know, people in 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 educational institutes and people of power, some of our politicians, the way that they came to kind of like in their really clever, you know, they call it they called it subversion in their clever way, kind of like get people a little bit into the, some of their thinking and and without them realizing it and kind of thinking it was like a, their idea, maybe, and sort of um even if it wasn't to um, directly turn people communist, if nothing else, just to kind of like divide and create some chaos, you know, and they, they, they did it for a while. They still do it now, but I think they were a lot better at it. Maybe 40, 50 years ago, they were doing a really good job at it. And I think they kind of planted seeds that did, you know, it took, it was a cultural thing, but has created a lot of chaos. I think that's part of it. I'm not saying it's the only reason. That's interesting. Um, I mean, we, we just uh, we just talked about Yuri Bezmenov the other day, uh, who I, I feel like you're referencing obliquely, uh, but maybe not. He's the he's the the Russian. Uh, he defected in like what carry eighty seven or sometimes eighty three something, something like that from the KGB. Like that. And uh, his his job yeah. was subversion, and he basically said like, here are the four stages. We're already through this first stage. We've already done this to America, um, and it was kind of exactly what you're talking about. It was taking over academia, taking over, um, you know, any kind of institutions um, with without uh, without a goal of implementing communism. It was just a goal of destroying the institutions from the yeah. inside, injecting this, Marxism into everything. Yeah, this is the guy who went to Canada, right? I think he ended up in America, but he went to Canada first. Maybe I don't I don't know his path. Maybe it was him. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a good example of it. But I mean, they really, but this is something that you don't even have to look at, like, <clears throat> one or two defectors who spoke up, like, you can just kind of like, find this stuff out, you know, my uncle, my uncle was um, a nuclear physicist, he worked on the new first nuclear reactor in New England, and the KGB called him up, they tried to make friends with him, yeah. you know, they tried him out to dinner, like, you know, and he, he didn't, and he actually, he he told the government about it but i mean this is what they were doing and they were very charming about it and very just like whatever like like yeah. so we're relations we're just being friends here you know so what were they doing to everybody else <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's not hard to figure out right and and uh if if your uncle was at a nuclear working on a nuclear reactor he likely had lots of paperwork that he signed um promising because I, I had a top secret clearance at one point in my life you have to report contact with foreign agents at all like if you meet someone at the gas station who's russian you had to report some guy i met someone yeah. right um but if you're a college professor 
you don't have that paperwork that you're signing. And so if the KGB takes you out and says, I want to have a conversation about your English department or your, you know, sociology department, why not? You don't have to report anything. Mm -hmm. And then it's a thought movement and an intellectual movement, which can um, do more damage. And, you know, by the, what was it? the 60s and 70s, the CIA knew that. You probably saw that report that came out where they were watching. They used to have like kind of stations all over the country where they were watching all over the world, not just the country. They were in other countries too. They were watching intellectuals because they were like, shit. <laughs> they're like, this is how they're going to get us. <laughs> right. They, kind of knew. they weren't very public about it, but they, they knew. They were like, this is where our vulnerability is among intellectuals and intellectual movements. What is that quote about the long march through the institutions? Does one of you know that? Uh, I don't, I don't know. but I we have Google. Yeah. It reminds me of that. That's kind of a prescient. Um, I'll look it up. Hold on. Yeah. While you're looking that up, I wanted to say uh, earlier, uh, Carter, when you were talking about uh, how we're kind of destroying like individual cultures where France isn't France anymore, you know, and uh, it made me think of that joke. You guys know that joke about heaven is where the police are British, the chefs are Italian, the mechanics are German, the lovers are French, and it's all organized by the Swiss. <laughs> but then hell is where the police are German, the chefs are British, the mechanics are French, the lovers are Swiss, and it's all organized by the Italians. <laughs> Funny. Uh, I'm that's sure that's racist and hilarious. <laughs> it's not going to make sense in 20 years. No, it won't. It won't. <laughs> um, so, by the and way, I... the long march through the institutions is a German slogan coined by student activist Rudy Duschke, I can't pronounce his name, to describe his strategy for establishing the conditions for revolution, subverting society by infiltrating institutions such as the professions. The phrase mm -hmm. the long march is a reference to the prolonged struggle of the Chinese communists. Blah, blah, blah. Okay. Anyway, um, that was Wikipedia giving you your answer. Thank you. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I don't know, April, what do we, uh, what do you think the solution is? What do we do? I don't know. I, I've been thinking about that a while. I don't know. <clears throat> um, a few things, you know, I think people need to get involved in their local politics again to keep all this working, get involved in your town politics, your state politics. That's actually where you have more voice. We weren't meant to have a lot of direct voice in presidential elections. Um, people need to get back to that here, at least. Um, and then they're controlling what they can control. Um, you know, it's certainly not going to change the fact that people have some wildly different ideas, but maybe if we're kind of culting off in different states and different towns and maybe people will feel like they have they want what they want you know like they're in a, they want things more socialized they can live in a more socialized state and work on that and vote for that or, or their town even right um people don't want that you know they can make that happen in their community and then you know if we had i mean that's where you know i am a little more libertarian because it's like then people will have what they want people have control over it and it won't be these like giant swaths of people like disagreeing on huge things and these sweeping policies coming out of the federal government that like you get a figure like even if it was like you know even if like 
52% of the population wanted that policy. That still leaves a ton of people very unhappy and not having what they want. Huge conflicts, you know. That's one of the things that I think would be better is if people could just focus on their communities more um, to kind of make things what they want and just feel more comfortable and safe and be allowed to do that too. Because in some ways we do, we do have federal government overreach that's kind of affecting people's mentality to think like, no, everything rides on everything that happens in the White House. Everything, well, of course, the, the federal government is a lot more powerful than it used to be, right? I mean, that it didn't used to matter as much. Right. 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 Um, so that that's a big thing. You know, that's that's if we could step back from that, I think that would help. It would give people back that feeling of power, you know, over the kind of over 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 the life they feel like they're living over their community, over the policies that are affecting them. So there's that, you know, there's that with the government, then, you know, corporations are a whole other discussion, I guess, you know, th those need a lid on them again, too. That would help. But, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what it would really take to get everybody on the same page to make that happen. <laughs> That's the thing. How do we get everyone on the same page? Now we've got more socialists showing up. We well, so actually, like, maybe, maybe, but you made a you made kind of a libertarian point, which which uh, I'm going yeah. as the uh, as the token. I'm not even technically a libertarian, but as the token libertarian esque guy uh, on the show, um, I, I think it's worth underscoring. In a free society, like in, well, we can call it capitalism or libertarian-esque or whatever, but in a freer society, um, if you want to be a communist and have a little commune with your communist friends and all agree that you share the means of production and you're going to distribute everything, like, you're allowed to. Right. Go ahead, right? Um, right. The flip side is if you're in a communist or a socialist state, you and your friends aren't allowed to get together and say like hey we just want to be free over here in this section yeah. like that's right. that's the difference between the two right? right um so there's nothing wrong with letting people be different they just need to be free enough to go experiment if that's what they want to do to choose it i mean yeah it, we have a problem that there's too many people now too this is too many people and uh, that's not even just an immigration issue that we can talk about that in terms of immigration but just um just people. I mean, it's, it, and I'm not, I'm not trying to say that like in a, in a negative, like, oh, people suck. They ruin everything. No, but it's just, this stuff was easier to manage when there were just less people. That's just the reality of it. We have more people now. We have more people, more problems. You have more people. Well, that changes the gun control conversation. <laughs> when you have tons of people living together, packed in these cities, living on top of each other. Now, like the prospect of people having guns changes. I mean, it does. So one thing I don't that know. Back, I go back to that. I go back to what's best for that community. How does that community want to handle it? But part of it is population. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to, you know, I think it was Carrie um that that was talking about this, but it might sorry, I'm I'm getting old. I don't even have short-term memory anymore. One <laughs> of you mentioned something about uh the CIA um I think maybe it was you having establishments all around the world kind of paying attention to professors, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I, th I think one thing that America generally has failed to do, which the Soviets were great at, um, the Soviets fought an ideological battle. They, they spent resources and energy telling people, hey, um, they, would, they may change Marxist ideology in some ways, but they, they, were, they were saying, hey, Marxism, 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 right? Any, any 
anything that they could kind of, uh, if they could own a philosophy department, then they would they would talk about right. postmodernism if and and they would introduce Marxist ideology and they would if they talked about economics they would introduce Marxist ideology and they were unashamed about making this a, a philosophical or ideological battle and something that I, I think that the US has failed to do as far back as I can remember and I'm 44 years old um, we never ideologically fought I guess maybe Reagan had a few speeches once in a while about ideology but we never we never say hey you know what world what makes america great to steal trump's phrase like what makes america great is individual freedom limited government like we have this constitution that outlines freedoms for our people and like this is a it's not copyrighted you can take it and try and implement it and and there are principles by by which this country is on, on which this country was founded and the enlightenment was important we never really talk about that. That kind of we always kind of push that aside as like, oh, that's just like philosophy, or that's just kind of, you know, armchair stuff. It's esoteric. It doesn't matter. Let's let's talk about the real issue of poverty. And you know, the other side doesn't do that. The other side recognizes the importance of ideas and the long-term impact. And the stuff you're talking about with the Soviet Union, they've been Soviet Union's been dead for decades. We're still recovering from the ideological warfare that they were much better at than we were in many in many ways and no one's really fighting that anymore it's why we let them take over universities and you know there aren't i'm not a conservative but there's very few conservatives on campus in in academia and that should be concerning to people right i think that part of it is i i think for a while we did kind of like bang our drum for our own ideology but the thing is is part of our ideology was to extend freedom of speech and let room for other ideologies in and it's like our strength was also our weakness um and then at some point it did take hold and that's why like in schools we don't get taught about the enlightenment we don't get taught about individual sovereignty we don't get taught why these things are so important why it took like humanity so long to kind of pop up with that idea like every, you know you, you look at everything we had to go through to just arrive at that hey maybe we just shouldn't be douches to each other how long that took. Yeah. How about it's like some nascent version of the non-aggression principle took 10,000 years, basically. It, yeah. So it, it, you know, that's huge. And we don't get philosophically taught that in our schools now. I think, I think it was spoken to a little bit more um, in previous generations. And I do think that, you know, and we had that age of McCarthyism where there was, there was that effort to be like, no, no, like there's, there, there's um, thought movements coming in here that are bad. Um, I do think there were efforts for it, I, but I think that because I don't want to say we lost it because we didn't totally lose, but because we always wanted to make room for that freedom because we're America, it was also our weakness. Yeah, I, 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 I kind of agree with you, although I would say um, I wouldn't want to ban Marxists from speaking uh, at all. And I would like I but I think if you don't present the counter argument, then you're left with nothing with but Marxism like. <laughs> fine you want to teach kids about marxism great but you got to teach them about the enlightenment i completely agree with you but i no, i agree with you and i wouldn't change the fact that we have that freedom but i just think that that's what left the door open for it to affect us in a way that's kind of surprising because yeah. you know people remember this is the risk you open yourself up to when you it's just it is what it is i'm not i don't i don't have a better solution either on that point but i mean um 
the other thing is that, you know, when you think about more traditional America and we call it the right now, but if you think about more the way it used to be, we also used to have religion and yeah. religion was our ideology. That was our ideology that we had. Yeah. That, we, that was the we, shared morals that would allow Democrats and Republicans to live in the same neighborhood and know mm -hmm. that they both had the same moral base that they were. But there's offering. also something different about religion. It's not just an ideology. It's a it's a personal we confuse religion, which is an ideology or an institution, with the personal transformation or the personal spiritual transformation, individual transformation. That is, that is what a, take Christianity, for example, that is, is what a Christ follower is supposed to be engaged in. So we have the wrong idea. I think culturally, Christianity has become under so much attack that people, and, and, and for some good reasons, because of the, the, radical right that we're talking about from when we were teenagers kids um the bad representations of christians in the in the mainstream um but an actual christianity at least as i'm starting to understand it is about it's it's not a, it's not uh, akin to going out and saying this is the way i'm supposed to affect radical change in the world and fix other people it's about it's about uh transforming yourself to be more like Christ. It's not about going out and uh, condemning others. It, you know, it, and, and so that, I just wanted to make that point because um, I've been thinking a lot about that recently. Like how is, how is, now I'm like a new Christian, how is religion different from ideology? In some ways it's not, but in other ways, if you're looking at like the essence of a belief system that is individual, like about individual change, that's different. I think. It depends on the belief system because Islam yeah. is not about individual change as much as it is about. I mean, I'm sure it's about that too, but it is much right. more explicitly, uh, you know, go going out, out and, and making the rest of the world Muslim. Right. I want to take this back for a second to mental illness because I know we have to wrap up soon. We're going a little over, but um, in the news, you were asking how to change things. Um, there there was a recent case it's going around on social media right now of a woman in oregon who just got arrested for um at a abortion provider she she ran out there was a pro-life protester out there a man and she ran up to him and shoved a bloody menstrual pad into his mouth and told him to eat it and was screaming at him yeah did you did you hear this april it's disgusting <laughs> It's I'm assault. sorry. To... I mean, and I mean, it depending is on what diseases she has, it's it could be pretty significant. That's right. So, I'm not funny. It's not funny because it, it's so dark and it's so gross. But like that it's is also mental funny. illness. We can laugh. I, I mean, yeah. it's funny that... and horrible at the same time. It's okay. But that's so. I was talking about that with a friend. It's like there's some mental illness there. I, I mean, how do you do that to someone? There's something wrong. And, and and there's that's not the only case I've seen. There's a, a whole compilation, uh, you know, on YouTube of different the the I'm sure some of the classic SJWs that we've seen melting down on YouTube. You know, the girls screaming and crying and throwing the trash can. And um, there's it, it's it's uh, there are a lot of these different public um, expressions of mm -hmm. something that's wrong and of this outrage expressing itself. Yeah or something else happened and you know i know i think i told i mentioned to you i think a while back about it was nine years ago now my brother suddenly died and like i was not normal for a while after that and that affected <clears throat> some of my my things that i was following like i started to get like extra hyper focused on like um 
my food and also like where I started to be, I'm trying to summarize it, so focused on like not harming anything. It was like its own obsession. Like I was, um, you know, one of those people I was like deep researching where like anything came from, any of my clothes that I bought, if it was like at all touched to like any sweatshops anywhere in the world, um, any of my, anything I bought, anything, anything I touched, like my car, like I remember going to buy a car and it technically had like a tiny bit of leather somewhere in it. And you know what I mean? I was getting like really hyper-focused on these things and like, you know, not killing any insects and that I might step on a bug. I was upset about driving because I was driving on bugs. It's, you know what I mean? Like I, I got really into this in my head for a while and I still don't kill bugs when I find them. I put them outside and that's good, you know, but um, you know, I was just trying to like, I, I was just being crazy because I was trying to like cope with what happened. In my grief, I was like negotiating things and thinking that like I had to, be, I was just so upset. I just thought I had to be this way. And I'm thinking of like everybody else who suffers and dies and like how I can like, you know, contract myself to the point where I'm not part of any of it. And like somehow not, you know, which, which turns into just not even participating in life. Right. You know, and, um, you know, and it also didn't bring him back. <laughs> you know it's just like something you go through you know but I but I worked through it. the point is I worked through it um you know you didn't live there I didn't stay there I did what people kind of should do people go through those things you know so it's like when, when I see that when I see somebody getting and now it's the past couple of years it's been this SJW stuff when I see people possessed by it and they're acting out that way I'm like this is something else like I can see it like something else happened to them it might be like an inborn biological problem they have, but a lot of them had something happen, you know, or they still, if they're in college, they're still mad at something one of their parents did or something, you know what I mean? And they just haven't worked through it and they're being encouraged to um, stay in it and keep acting it out and even create policy over it. And that's just terrible. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This is the worst place to be in. <laughs> well, is it, uh, I think it's Jordan Peterson whom you referenced earlier, which is, you know, make your damn bed, right? Before you go telling everyone else to do what they right. should do and how to run the world, go make your bed. Um, right. And so maybe that's... Uh, that's a, what you can do. That's what you can do. <laughs> Just go make that's what you can do. Deal with what, like like April said, um, on the local political level, like deal with what you can change. And on the smallest level, that's dealing with yourself and your issues. And um, I think... Control. <laughs> you know, be re and be reasonable about it and realistic about it, <laughs> you know, and it, yeah, you know, if something bad has happened, you can't really put that on the world. Yeah. Guilty cool. admission. I've done that before too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, any, any closing thoughts? I know you've got to run April, so uh, we can't keep you any longer. Any closing thoughts you want to, want to give us? Oh, it's been great. This has been really fun. I'm glad we were able to make this happen and, you know, this is great. I like talking with you guys. Like we should yeah. do it again. It's a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, we should definitely do it again. So thank you very much for joining us and taking the time. Thanks, April. Thank you, guys. Thanks. Have a good day. I'll talk to you later. You too. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye.